I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we know each person in our community by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative people and we sustain everyone in our community. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, our guests will be Drs. Genesee Herzberg and Jason Butler, the co-founders of the pioneering and widely acclaimed SAGE Institute, our country's first psychedelic psychotherapy clinic for the economically disadvantaged. Stay tuned for this excellent an exciting interview. During the interview, or now, I invite you to text or call in 650-TALLY-HO. Doesn't that have a nice ring? 650-TALLY-HO. Text in or call in. But first, before our great interview, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. Here's some of the things I've come to believe about transmission of COVID-19. The transmission of COVID is related to duration, intensity, and protection, and to a certain extent, your immune system, but that's after the transmission has already taken place. Duration is the amount of time we're exposed to COVID molecules. Intensity is the number of COVID molecules one's exposed to. Obviously, there's a difference between being in an elevator with someone who's infected and being outdoors in an arena. Protection refers to methods we use to protect ourselves and others from COVID transmission. The three major methods of protection are facial masks, social distancing, and hand washing. Remember, for a mask to be protective, it must fit without any gaps between the mask and the face. We take pains to employ these protective tactics to avoid contracting the virus and of equal importance to protect those around us and to protect our hospitals from getting overcrowded and overrun. Protecting our hospitals is a major focus because if the hospitals get filled with COVID patients, there's little room for persons needing hospitalization for other reasons and hospital staff will be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed hospitals lead to unnecessary suffering and death. I find it ironic, if not a cosmic joke, that Americans on the political right who have perpetrated supercriticism, defamation, and even violence against political left civil protesters now find themselves protesting and in some cases breaking laws in the name of expressing what they see as their constitutional right not to wear a facial garment, which the majority of the public believe 
prevents the spread of COVID-19. One can make an argument for refusing to protect oneself in the name of, well, I have a right to injure myself so long as my doing so does not injure another. However, note here that few people, if any, protest against motorcycle helmets or seatbelts. Some do. However, mandating facial masks, our state and local governments in California are saying, we do not have the right to refuse to cooperate with laws addressing the use of certain protective garments to to prevent the spread of COVID-19. By obeying the law, the facial mask wearer is avoiding weaponizing themselves. What do we do? Do we criticize and defame the anti-maskers to protest the wearing of facial masks? Do we turn them in and get them fined? Do we invite them to talk and then listen carefully to what they say? Can we allow ourselves to lend our best ear to those we think are acting recklessly with our very lives? How do we best handle dissenting opinions of the minority when their dissenting opinions may cause us injury or death? Something to think about, love to hear from you on these questions. Now, more about our program today. In 1972, Richard Nixon declared war on drugs as a way of declaring war on hippies and blacks. Declaring war was not a metaphor. Let us make no mistake about it. Nixon declared war, and as a result, people were injured, killed, and millions of lives were damaged. That is war. Listen to the words of Nixon advisor John Ehrlichman. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war on black or the war on hippies, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt their communities. We could arrest their leaders. We could raid their homes. We could break up their meetings. We could destroy their families and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That was a president we elected. The laws we have created, which give our employees, called police, the license to enter our homes and take us at gunpoint, those are laws we have created. 50 years after Nixon, now in the Gregorian calendar year 2020, the war persists. And as I speak these words, someone in the U.S. is being arrested at gunpoint and taken away for a possession of a substance which is legal, legal in the state of Oregon and legal in four cities in the United States, Oakland, Denver, Santa Cruz, and Ann Arbor. Some of these substances are being used successfully in psychotherapy. Yes, you can go to jail in one state and you can be the recipient of psychotherapy with that substance in another state. Here in California, ketamine is a legal prescription medicine. And today we have with us two pioneers in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Let's welcome Drs. Genesee Herzberg 
and Jason Butler, founders of the pioneering, widely acclaimed Sage Institute, offering psychedelic psychotherapy to the economically challenged. Dr. Genesee Herzberg is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in working with trauma and integrating psychedelic experiences, meditation, and mindfulness in her work. She identifies as fluid in terms of gender and sexuality and has an affinity for working with gender non-binary and queer folks. And she's allied with BIPOC, which stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. Dr. Jason Butler is a licensed clinical psychologist, writer, and educator. His primary interests stand at the intersection of depth psychology, social justice, trauma theory, and psychedelic psychotherapy. Both doctors, Herzberg and Butler, are therapists for the MDA, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy PTSD trials sponsored by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they both offer ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in their private practices. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Genesee and Jason. Thank you, Richard. It's lovely to be here. Great to see you both. Well, I'm going to start off by asking you each, how did you come to psychedelic psychotherapy in your careers? Sure, I'll go ahead and start off there, Richard. Thank you for having me. By the way, I appreciate being here. Uh, so I had the good fortune of coming across psychedelics as a young person. I was involved in the countercultural movement uh, surrounding electronic dance music. Went to many raves as a 15-year-old and was able to try LSD there for the first time uh, and, and was supported by the ethos of uh, what was called PLUR at the time, which stands for Peace, Love, Unity, and Respect. So I was initiated into psychedelics at that age and and as an adult, uh, I think that continued to inform uh, the work that I wanted to do as a psychologist. So went on to study transpersonal and depth orientations in psychotherapy, which I think are a, a really important foundation for psychedelic work. So it was actually uh, the recreational use of uh, mind-altering substances that led you on to become a professional and then became uh, a, a professional a pioneer in psychedelic psychotherapy. Is that right? It was, yeah. I could say even though it was recreational use, there was still incredible benefit that I was receiving from that. I see. And Genesee, how did you uh, come to this particular specialty? I was introduced to psychedelics by a friend as well in my uh, late teens, early 20s. And, and that friend happened to be someone who died shortly thereafter in a drunk driving accident and that loss spun me out into a serious existential crisis and depression that I was stuck in for many years and I, I leaned on psychedelics during that time to reconnect with him and ultimately to reconnect with a sense of meaning and purpose in life and they were a huge support in helping me to find my way out of a depression and find my way towards the work that I do currently as a psychologist and and also as a psychedelic therapist. Well that's interesting it's something we have, have in common because uh, I started the um Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program back in the 1980s 
as a result of a friend dying of a cocaine overdose. Mm -hmm. So we, we share that as a, a starting phenomenon. Well, now both of you tell us uh, and tell our listeners, please, about, um, about ketamine itself. Uh, what is it? What does it do? All you need to know about ketamine in a short period of time. Sure. So, so ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. It's used in medical settings uh, to support people in going into uh, surgery, uh, both in hospitals and also on the battlefield with both children and adults and animals. It's an incredibly safe medicine that's used in all kinds of different settings, like I mentioned, including on the battlefield because of its uh, the fact that it doesn't impact the respiratory system in any major way. So it was called the buddy drug and or the buddy uh, medicine in Vietnam because uh, a, a, a fellow troopsman could inject it to support people who were injured and it, it decreased the number of mortalities on the battlefield by about half at the time. So you opened up by saying it was a dissociative medicine. Tell our listeners what dissociative means, please. Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a dissociative anesthetic. So distinguished from other anesthetics in that it, it gives the sensation of uh, separation between the mind and the body. So at lower doses, people maintain consciousness, but can no longer feel their, their bodily sensations. So that, that's something that actually supports it today in, in the ways that we use it in the context of psychotherapy. Uh, so around the 1990s, it was discovered that people coming out of surgery, having undergone ketamine, were feeling often less depressed. And so psychiatrists and anesthesiologists started to experiment with using it as a treatment for, for depression. And it proved to be quite efficacious. And so they went on to uh, integrate it as a, as a therapy used both in anesthesiology settings as, as a, an IV treatment, as well as in psychiatry settings as both an IM injection, as well as a sublingual lozenge. So these are much lower doses that are used th than in surgical settings, uh, but they, they proved to be equally as effective in, in decreasing depressive symptoms. And when you use uh, ketamine in psychotherapy, uh, how is it administered to the patient? Yeah, so the primary route of administration that we use at Sage Institute, which uh, helps with affordability and accessibility, are, uh, is the sublingual route of administration. So the ketamine comes in a lozenge form and the uh, client just simply puts the lozenges underneath their tongue holds that there for 15 minutes, and then the ketamine is absorbed sublingually. After the 15 minutes, they swallow, and a bit is absorbed through the stomach lining as well. Uh, other agencies, and, and on occasion at Sage Integrative Health, will use the intramuscular route of administration as well. Um, however, that uh, requires that there be a, a medical staff um, on site, and so that can um, increase the cost of the, of the treatment because of that route of administration. And what level of uh, medical uh, specialist needs to be on site for a, a intramuscular uh, administration? Can it be a nurse or does it have to be a medical doctor? It could be a nurse. It could be an RN. Uh, it could be an NP, a nurse practitioner, a registered nurse, or a medical doctor. Thank you. That's helpful to know. And so for the most part, you're using uh, lozenges. 
And um, the therapy used to take place, well, we're starting to talk about the SAGE Institute. Uh, I guess I wanted to ask another question before we get to SAGE, which is um, how are you handling psychedelic psychotherapy during the COVID pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good question. So we've we've adapted pretty significantly, and and we're trying out methods that I think would, um, prior to the pandemic, be uh, things that we wouldn't necessarily take up. Um, primarily, what I'm talking about there is is virtual uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Um, so we've developed methods along with other clinics that we're in close collaboration with around using telehealth to um, provide uh, good quality psychedelic assisted therapy. And would you refer to it as telehealth or could, could it also be called virtual psychotherapy or does that sort of the word virtual connected to psychotherapy sort of diminish the psychotherapy because it has a feeling of non-reality? We've been using both terms interchangeably. And I mean, it's, it's funny that you say that in some ways it does feel a little bit uh, unreal, but in other ways, I've been surprised by the extent to which you can really be with someone across a screen, connect with them, support them in their process, et cetera. Yes. I've noticed that with my own patients as well, that uh, you can actually get very close, even though you're very far because the face is on the screen so large in front of you that it lends itself to a certain intimacy, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, and you know, Richard, I'll, I'll just jump in to say there was some surprising benefits that we wouldn't have anticipated, uh, which is the clients are, are doing this work at their home, which means they're setting up a really, um, you know, well-held container in, in a space at their home. They're engaging in this deep psycho-spiritual work at their home. So their home gets infused with, whatever comes up for them in the treatment, which makes it, for one, you don't have to commute, so it's a bit more convenient. For two, uh, there's a, maybe a bit more of ease and integration in that the experience is right there in one's place of familiarity. I think we need to create a new word to describe it. I, 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 virtual doesn't really work for me because when I give somebody a virtual hug, I'm not really touching them. And we all know that, you know, we stand eight feet away and we move our arms like this, or we're <laughs> over the, you know, we're over the screen and we move our arms and we say virtual hug, but you don't feel it. And so I wouldn't want that to carry over to, to your good work with psychotherapy and somehow it diminishes, you know, you don't feel it, it's, it's therapy. And I sort of prefer something along your lines that you said about the, the teletherapy uh, maybe we can figure out a new word like teledelic or uh, <laughs> teledelic psychotherapy. It sounds a little funny, doesn't it? So, it. well, we can be thinking about it, but I do think we, we need a, a, a good word, a word that says what it does and, and, uh, and is positive. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Sa- Let's talk a little now about the SAGE uh, Institute. Give us some background. Uh, how did you two arrive uh, at c- the creation of the uh, Sage Institute? 
So I actually opened our sister organization called Sage Integrative Health in June of 2018 with the intention of, of creating an integrative health center with a wide variety of alternative health modalities, including massage therapy, nutrition, acupuncture, and naturopathic medicine, alongside psychiatry, mental health treatment, and ketamine-assisted therapy, and preparing ourselves to integrate other psychedelic therapies as they become legal all under one roof with, with a collaborative team of practitioners. So we opened Sage Integrative Health, uh, like I said, about two and a half years ago, and we're able to you know, thrive into a successful business with, with a primary limitation being that we weren't able to make our treatments as accessible as we wanted to. We weren't able to really access a, a wide variety of, of diverse communities in our work. And so we started to think about how do we how do we make a difference here? Insurance isn't yet available to cover psychedelic treatments, and so we needed to think of something else. Where we landed was Sage Institute, a sliding scale nonprofit clinic that offers low fee ketamine assisted therapy and under, and other mental health treatments. We've been open since uh, September of last year, so uh, a little over a year and a half now, or a little under a year and a half now. Now, if someone has uh, insurance that pays for their psychotherapy, then ketamine therapy would come under that umbrella and they would get compensated or not? That's right, they would, but typically out-of-network benefits are really insignificant for mental health treatment. So maybe they'll get something like $40, $40 to $60 back. On average, some people are able to get more with more comprehensive plans, but for the most part, it really doesn't cover anywhere near what the full fee for a treatment is. You know, market rate for a psychotherapy treatment is about $200, $200 a session. Market rate for a ketamine treatment is around $1,000 a session. So very high in contrast to, to what insurance reimburses. And why is, the, uh, why is there an $800 difference between the market rate for psychotherapy and the market rate for ketamine psychotherapy? Sure. Uh, a, a regular psychotherapy session is 50 minutes. Uh, Ketamine-assisted therapy session is typically about three hours, plus the practitioner preparing the space, creating a playlist of music, uh, you know, doing a decent amount of collaboration with other practitioners, and then supporting them in, in integrating afterwards. So the, the session itself just requires a decent amount of more, more of the practitioner's time and energy. So... How do people afford that? I mean, uh, we're talking about a, 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 of a clinic that's set up specifically for, if I understand you correctly, correct me if I'm off here, that's set up for people who are uh, economically challenged to a certain amount, yet $1,000 for a, se a session sounds like quite a bit of money for a person who's economically challenged. So tell our listeners how that works out. So that's market rate for a ketamine session at Sage Institute. We're able to bring our fees down to $15 per therapy session and $60 per ketamine treatment. So, Oh, my word. Oh, what down. a huge difference. Wow. Oh, I had absolutely no idea. $15 for a therapy session. And say it again, how much for the ketamine assisted? $60. $60 instead of 1000 yeah. And fifteen instead of two hundred. What? A, what? What? That is that is remarkable. I don't know how you and your staff 
are able to maintain. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite an achievement. It's quite an achievement. Thank you. And, and one of the primary ways that we're able to do that is through um, Sage Institute is not just a low fee clinic, but it's a training center. So um, our therapists are all primarily pre-licensed clinicians. So they're working to accrue their hours towards licensures, either MFTs, social workers, or psychologists. And in that stage of the training, it's, it's somewhat of an apprenticeship model where uh, traditionally folks work for a, a lower pay uh, since they're still in training. So we're able to provide a reduced fee um, in that model in that we're, we're making use of early career and pre-licensed clinicians who are, are making less money um, as a result. And um, that's the way that we're able to keep the costs down. Now, the income that we get through, um, through charging clients is not enough to cover our overhead. So as a nonprofit, a, a big part of the work that we do to keep costs down is fundraising. So you, you, you're using the funds that come in from fundraising to subsidize the actual therapy that goes on, I would imagine, because I, I really don't understand how you can even charge $15 an hour and pay the person who's doing the work and have any left over for the overhead of the room that they're using and the various other expenses that they incur by providing the work. Uh, that's, it's almost. Well, a of, yeah. A couple of things there. One of them is that we have a sliding scale. So $15 is the very bottom of the sliding scale, but many people pay more than that. And it goes up to $120. So we have a whole range of different fees that people are paying depending on their, their particular income and financial resources. Also, like Jason mentioned, our psychotherapists are in training and it's common practice within the mental health field for people who are still accumulating hours towards licensure to receive those hours towards licensure, supervision and training in exchange for a much, much lower uh, payment for their work. Yes, I've, I figured that, but I couldn't figure out how they got anything at all if the patient or client is paying 15 bucks. That's where <laughs> donations it, come in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's where the donations have to come in to support something like this. Mm -hmm. And how have you been received in the community with regard to that uh, issue? Incredibly well. We, we have a huge wait list. So there are a lot of people who clearly are wanting and needing these kinds of services. And, and meanwhile, we've gotten a, a ton of support from the community. I like to bring forward an idea called community-supported medicine, where, you know, you, you mentioned the importance of community and knowing each other. And I think another aspect of community is supporting each other. So those of us who have more resources, supporting those who have less so that we all are able to access what we need. Yes, I really believe that. I believe that when people know one another in, in the community, then they, they are more, much more likely to take care of one another. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think in a small a community where people really know each other, at least by face, that they let people starve mm -hmm. or let people go without some form of treatment because the person's too close to allow that. It's easier to allow that. Easier is a funny word, but it is easier to allow that when the person that it's happening to is abstract you know, is a number on a page, you know, 20 people starving in, uh, in Oakland. Mm 
right? It, it's an abstraction. Right. But 20 people or one person starving in your neighborhood that you know and see every day, that's not an abstraction. That's reality. And I, I think we take care of each other in that regard. And, and I, I, I love your concept of, uh, you know, com- community supported. I think that's, that's really excellent. Um, what kind of people are you seeing uh, at, your, at your clinic? We see a wide range of, of clients who come from all different backgrounds, uh, all different races, all different ethnicities, all different sexual orientations and gender identifications. Over 50% of our clients identify as Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and another 50% identify as queer. So, so we have a very diverse community of people who we work with and a very diverse community of therapists who offer the therapy. You know, this is an aside from the topic we're on, but it's something that caught my interest. And that is, why are people purposely using a word that was used in the past to disparage them as a way of identifying themselves? And I'm referring to the use of the word queer. Mm-hmm. What, what is your thinking on that? Yeah, well, it's, it, it's quite self-consciously uh, selected. There's a professor at UC Berkeley who's and name uh, is Judith Butler. She happens to be uh, the founder of queer studies in in the world of philosophy. And there was a there was an active movement to reclaim that word and to redefine it as a way of owning one's own identity. And so there's been a lot written about it that um, is quite sophisticated in that argument. But uh, there's an attempt to reclaim that word uh, and to use it in a way that was affirming of identity rather than disparaging. That's an interesting twist because I don't know historically that that word has ever been used in a positive way. So I don't know what there is to reclaim, but we can we can have that discussion at another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we have two questions from uh, Joe in Oakland. He writes in and asks you both, as far as uh, dosage goes, on the spectrum from microdosing on the one hand to experiencing near ego death on the other, where do you calibrate the amount of psychoactive substance, in this case ketamine, that you use in obsession to produce the greatest effect and result? That's a great question. How do you determine dose? That is a really good question. And I will say that there's, I don't think that there's one right dose that's most effective for everybody. It varies a lot depending on the person and their particular constitution. So typically we start people, our our prescriber starts people at a lower dose and they then have the experience of of what we call psycholytic therapy. So they're still in the room with their therapist, their consciousness is right there. They can still feel their body, though they may feel a little bit heavier, less anxious, a little bit more comfortable, looser associations, greater access to their unconscious mind and to spontaneous arising of images and insights. 
um, but they're very well able to continue to have a conversation with their therapist. So it's somewhat akin to MDMA assisted therapy. Um, and we'll start off with that so that we can get a sense of whether that particular dose range, it's sublingual, it, it ranges from about 50 to 150 sublingual ketamine um, and see how that works for folks. Some people will elect to continue at that dose ongoingly and others will elect to move into a higher dose range if their prescriber approves it and they're a good fit for higher dose ketamine. Those sessions we call psychedelic psychotherapy, you know, kind of traditional psychedelic psychotherapy, maybe similar to an LSD or psilocybin experience where people have eye shades on, they're listening to music throughout the session, and they enter into an experience of near ego death, um, of their, their communication abilities, and also their ability to feel their body starts to decrease up to the point where it's really hard to talk or to move. And often they have spontaneous images and visions that come forward. They may lose their sense of who they are and where they are. It may feel very dreamlike in nature. And they'll spend about 45 minutes to an hour in that state and then slowly come back into their body and talk to the therapist and integrate their experience thereafter. Now, both of these methods can be effective for people, and it varies a lot from person to person which one or, or whether both may end up being effective. So, so we, we really tailor the treatment to the individual and try it out until we find something that works for folks. So it sounds like you use a rather standard method in all of medicine in the early stages, which is to use as little as possible to get the effect and then you keep moving up until you get the effect that you want. That's right. Yep. That's a standard conservative uh, way of going about it. You mentioned dosage of 50 to 150. I assume you mean milligrams. Milligrams. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's important for Joe to know. That's so right. And then at and the higher doses, it's more like 150 milligrams to up to 400 milligrams sublingual again. Okay. And so people can safely take up to 400 milligrams of ketamine sublingually safely. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Ketamine uh, is an incredibly safe medication. So you can actually go much higher than that. But, you know, as you start to get into the higher dose ranges, it's best to have a, a medical person present. But at, at, uh, at 400 or below, of course, you still follow, I'm, I know you do in, in psychotherapy, uh, but people are listening and they might be uh, tempted to use it at home since it's a prescription medicine and they can get it. Mm -hmm. So they, you still, we use, you use, you recommend using our standard procedure of set and setting of having a very special setting that this takes place in, right? With no telephones, no, no, no televisions, no external noises, sounds, intrusions, as quiet as possible. And of course, the mental set going into that has to be attended to and people need to, to read about and to understand, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Richard, this is such an important point. So I'm glad you're emphasizing it that whether you're using these medicines with a psychotherapist or at home or even rec recreationally with a, a group of, of friends or family, uh, set and setting is, is you know, such an, an, an integral component in the quality the, of one's experience. Uh, and preventing um, uh, harmful experiences that could r result in, in damage to one's uh, relationships, to one's body, et cetera, et cetera. 
So um, as you mentioned, set has to do with the kind of mindset going into the experience. So as therapists, whether we're working with the individual or just talking to the community about harm reduction and maximizing the benefits, we want to encourage people to go into these experiences with a pretty clear set of mind. And so if somebody's coming into an experience um, wanting to an escape, wanting to escape difficult feelings, for example, that's going to be part of the mental set that one brings in. And so you're bringing fear into the experience. Um, a transpersonal psychologist named Stanislav Grof, who's a big um, a contributor to the world of psychedelic therapy, he defines psychedelics as non-specific amplifiers of consciousness. And so if you imagine going into an experience with a lot of fear in your system, then that fear is going to be amplified once you take the psychedelic. So you can imagine whatever is there at an emotional or cognitive level, the volume will be turned up on it once you, once you ingest the psychedelic into your body. So we just want to encourage people to, to really consider that and to try to enter in with um, as open, receptive, and trusting of a mindset as one can, and that will maximize the benefits uh, regardless of, of what one's intent is in doing the psychedelic. Yes, and I'm glad you used the example of fear because um, going in with fear can lead to what has been referred to as a bad trip. And I always say that a bad trip is the best kind of trip because a bad trip, the way it used to be described, is meaning you're dealing with such, let's say, fear, for example. Well, the best thing, in my opinion, that can happen is to have fear be expressed if there was fear lurking about, is to have the fear be amplified, because then, since you're working with a therapist while it comes out, you get to look at the fear, you get to heal the fear, you get to master the fear, and you come out confident that you've wiped out some of the fear that was lurking in the recesses of your mind, which is a wonderful success story for a therapy treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. That's a great point. And the difference there being that in, in a therapy setting, or if somebody is prepared adequately, then you know, if fear comes up, it's coming up for a reason. And it can be approached as part of the healing process. Whereas if you're hit with fear, or have a lot of fear going in, and don't have that kind of um, wherewithal or sensibility of working through the fear for the purposes of healing, uh, then you might uh, you might just amplify the fear. You know, fear can beget more fear to the point of panic, and and that can um, you know be damaging rather than healing. And so we just want to encourage folks to uh, you know one of the one of the sayings that's used by uh, I think Bill Richards and uh, Roland Griffiths at the Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Research Center where they're using psilocybin for end of life cancer folks. Um, one of the things that they tell people is if you if you feel fear in the experience when you're when you're on the medicine uh, to go towards it rather than to run away That's from right. it. That's and, right. And I find that to be a very powerful instruction. It's very simple. Uh, and yet it can be just a powerful encouragement to really face one fears, one's fears in these expanded states of consciousness. And as you said, that can have uh, incredible impact on a person's psychology incredibly positive impact so long as the person going towards the fear has this professional guide to help them through it 
Yeah. We we don't we're not in any way recommending to you listeners to try this kind of thing out alone because the issue with doing it alone is that if the the psychedelic magnifies something unpleasant we're using fear as an example it could be a trauma it could be various other negative things that are floating around back there if we do it alone or without experience we know that we can get into a loop and when you're in a loop you just keep going around in circles and circles on the same issue so all you're doing is sitting or laying there or standing there experiencing fear and it can build and go around a circle without any mastery, without any building of confidence, without any healing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the opposite is true when folks like you have the person in the room and the fear comes up, you're almost hoping for it. You want some of that, that ooky stuff to come up so that you can then deal with it. That's what the person is there for. And, and yeah. uh, I appreciate you naming that. And, and that is an, a particularly important thing to consider with ketamine as opposed to some of the other psychedelics because of its dissociative effects. So at higher doses, people often, like I mentioned before, they lose the ability to move their bodies. They lose their ability to speak and they can also have a complete ego disillusion, which is possible with, you know, with uh, LSD or psilocybin as well. But but with ketamine, people can completely lose track of who they are and without someone there to make sure that they stay safe and to remind them of what's happening, it can be a, a very scary experience. So, so really high dose ketamine should happen with the support of a, a trusted guide. The no. other, the other oh, set, setting me. issue that I just want to mention quickly that's particular to ketamine, with most psychedelics, they recommend not eating beforehand so that you've digested whatever material is in your stomach uh, before the, the substance uh, is, is ingested. It, it's particularly important with ketamine because ketamine can cause pretty intense nausea and vomiting if there's substantial food or even liquids in the digestive system. So you want to leave at least two hours with no liquids and three or more hours with no food. And it has a particularly problematic interaction with alcohol. So you don't want to be mixing ketamine and alcohol. That sounds like something to be underlined, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you mentioned that the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy at the Sage Institute is an approximate three-hour session. Now, is that true whether the person is taking what you call the psycholytic dosage, which would be smaller, around 50 milligrams, but also if they took a larger dose, which was 150 to 400 milligrams, are they still able at the end of three hours to stand up and go home? They are. Yeah, the duration is the same, whether it's a small or large dose. Sometimes people will take a booster and that will extend the, the length of the effects. But even so, typically people finish up within about three hours. Sometimes it's a little bit longer with a booster. I see. And when they take what you're calling a booster... Uh, what is the, is the dosage uh, a percentage of the original dose or is it the same? It's typically smaller, typically about 50 to 100 milligrams sublingual. So, so maybe, you know, a third to a half of the original dose. Here's a question again. Of, oh, it's from uh, Joe in Oakland again. Uh, given how reasonable your rates are for sessions, oh, you're going to love this question. Do you have a mechanism yet? 
for receiving donations or philanthropy to support your work? And if so, how can we do that? Having a healthier, saner populace is in everyone's best interest. So here's a man who wants to know, how do the listeners uh, send you uh, funds? Thanks, Joe. That That's really kind. And I, I'm with you there that, that really we all benefit from from everyone feeling better and doing better in our society. So yeah, we, we, we happily accept donations and we have an easy way to do that. If you go to our website, which is www.sageinst.org slash donate, you'll see that there's an easy way to make either a one-time donation or a monthly donation. Both are, are greatly appreciated and monthly donations are especially helpful because they allow us to budget into the future and know how much we're going to be able to count on from our supporters. Mm-hmm. Another question. Oh, and I guess I'll just add quickly that we, we just received our 501c3 status this month. And so all oh. donations made to Sage Institute are tax deductible. Congratulations. Thank you. Here's a question. Uh, It's on the use of ketamine by the police and the killing of someone named Elijah McLean. I'm not familiar with that. I I don't know if you two are. I'm curious about what is happening where ketamine will kill someone versus the way it's used in psychotherapy, I, I don't, I've never heard of ketamine killing someone, and I don't know anything about this Elijah McLean case. Do either of you know anything about that? Yeah, yeah, we do. This happened, I think, back in the summer of this year, where a young Black man was walking down the street in Colorado, just going home, minding his own business, and he was stopped by the police who uh, basically uh pestered him until he got frustrated and scared and they tried to hold him down he tried to get away he was never violent he was never trying to hurt anyone he was just trying to go home Um, but after a while of holding him down they then injected 500 milligrams of intramuscular ketamine into him and he 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 died shortly after that Um, so it was incredibly tragic incident and it, it, it really is scary and problematic that ketamine would be used as a tool for oppression in this way. It's not something that we support at all. And it, it shows the way that these kinds of medicines are incredibly potent and can be used in all different kinds of circumstances with all different kinds of intentions. And so we, like I've mentioned, this is certainly not something that we support. It's very different from ketamine used in the context of a psychotherapy treatment where that the treatment itself is always elective. It's always done with the consent of the client and it's, it's done at much lower doses. So uh, 500 milligrams intramuscular, that's, that's about uh, 10 times as much as a, a sublingual, like a hundred milligram sublingual dose, um, maybe even more than that, 10 to 20 times as much. So, so it's a huge dose. It's not necessary to give someone that large of a dose in order to subdue them. And really this person should not have been subdued through, through the ketamine at all. Is it thought that the ketamine was what caused the death of the uh, McLean, Mr. McLean? 
It's unclear. Ketamine, like I mentioned, is very safe, even at very high doses. So even in, in anesthetic doses, it's, it's, there's not a large risk of death or there's a, there's a very, mm -hmm. very tiny risk of death, which is always due to other complications. In this case, it likely had something to do with the fact that they were restraining him for quite a long time. And so his blood pressure was probably very high. His pulse was very high. When you administer ketamine, you generally want to know that their pulse and blood pressure are at a safe level before administering the ketamine. So that, that combination could have been the problem. It may have been other things as well that we don't know about, other medical conditions, um, other aspects of violence that we don't know happened. It, it's pretty uh, vague. Here's a question that I don't quite understand, but maybe you two will. My impression is that all on live stream right now are straight and white. I think the listener is referring to the three of us. Uh, and as a queer person, I wonder why you would ask them about the word queer unless they actually identify as such and say so. I didn't hear that. Do you want to respond? Yeah. Jason, you responded to that question. Would you like to, or I'm happy to as well? Uh, sure. Well, you know, I heard the question as as a, a question around language and why why the word queer is used as as an identity marker. So yeah, I was just doing my best to try to give a little bit of the history there. Um, it is a, an identity that I have um, a deep affiliation with. So I feel like I can kind of speak from within that community uh, with respect and and do my best to try to educate people around uh, what kind of language is used to mark identity. Yeah, and we are we are all white. I do identify as queer. And so, what is well? Uh, let's let's spend a few moments on it since the listener has brought it to to our uh, to to our attention. Um, when you say that, Genesee, if I may, what what does it mean to you to say that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it means that I have an interest in a wide variety of people of different genders and sexualities uh, in terms of my own sexual preferences. It also means that I, I feel part of a community that uh, has a, a wide range of, of sexual preferences and gender identities. Are you making a political statement as well by purposefully uh, identifying yourself as part of this uh, group? Is it, important, mm. is it important to you in that regard to be be making the political statement? I think it's important for me to be out in that way because though I'm married to a, a white heterosexual straight man, I, I also have had uh, multiple relationships with people of, of different identities. And, and so I guess in some way you could call it political and, and just um, being clear about uh, things that are otherwise hidden in, in my identity. And similarly, Richard, I would just jump in and say, if, uh, if you take a look at my tag here on the Zoom, I've put my pronouns here in, in parentheses, and it's, it's very much of the same spirit, you know, it wouldn't be typical for a cis 
uh, cisgendered male presenting person to put their pronouns in, in their name title. But what I'm doing here is, is essentially queering gender, deconstructing the categories that we assume and then project on all people. So I'm, I'm coming out in a sense of the pronouns that I prefer to use as a way of allying with, with folks that don't fall into that gender binary. So to queer something is to just to break open the constructs that keep people bound up in certain cultural constructions and ways of seeing things. So I think there's actually quite a bit of overlap between what queer theory has done and, and these, um, these kinds of discussions have done and what psychedelics attempt to do as well, just to break open habitual patterns of thinking and get people to think more creatively more uh, intuitively based on one's own lived experience rather than the kind of cultural narratives that are handed over to any person. I, I love the fact that you two identify in such a way as to participate and support. Uh, I regret that the words themselves, regardless of what they are, divide us it, it, because I think we, we can agree that it would be better for everybody if we all identified as queer, right? It's it's the it's the it's in some way the 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 use of the word disparagingly that causes us now to, you all as you're saying to want to reclaim it in a positive way, because we we put down people in the past and and they're still being put down and it's it's terribly painful. The one, the one thing that I would add there around everybody identifying as queer would be um, something like that, that is, a, it is a, an important sentiment and it's important to have an idea of allyship with marginalized communities. Yeah. However, to, uh, to use a label to, to speak to everybody um, diminishes the way that label carries the history of oppression that folks from within that community are trying to mark by taking that up as an identity marker. And so we wouldn't want to whitewash or, or kind of mm -hmm. dismiss the kind of um, particular uh, lived experience of folks that do uh, kind of live inextricably from that identity position, mm -hmm. you know, walking down the street with their same sex lover and being harassed on the street. I wouldn't want to um, erase that through everybody taking up the mantle mm -hmm. of queer. Point well taken. It might Thank be you. similar as Elizabeth Warren calling herself Native American and the ways that that dismissed the experience of many Native Yes, yes. sensitive point well taken. Thank you. And thank you for, for digressing uh, to this uh, other point about, uh, but it's still important because it's a minority group being treated in ways that disrupt their emotional state and their stability in this world. Very much so. And, and it's very in line with what we're attempting to do at Sage Institute. As, as the listener pointed out, the three of us are all, all white folks here. And um, the field itself of psychedelic psychotherapy and psychedelic medicine is largely dominated by white, white identified people as well. Uh, so what we're doing at Sage Institute to help to ameliorate that and to diversify the field is uh, although we're a largely white staff, we're working very hard to bring on a more diverse staff to increase representation there. Uh, and then the interns that we bring on are, um, we, we really try to draw in psychotherapists, interns that represent diverse identities. And so the clinicians that clients end up seeing uh, 
the hope is that they will um, look similar and feel similar to the clients that we're attempting to serve. And that, that aspect of representation is just, just one aspect of how we're attempting to uh, work through the kind of white supremacy and um, uh, hegemony of, of whiteness within the, in the field of psychedelics. Well, I can attest to the fact that you're doing that because I've, I've, uh, I've connected with some of the people that you work with, and they definitely are people who identify as gender fluid. They're people who identify as Native Americans, Latinx, Hispanic, uh, a wide variety of people, and, and, I, and that's uh, really uh, a testament to your good work. Um, let's move on now a bit from, uh, although there is still one other thing I did, I made a little note in the back of my head here that I wanted to come back to. Again, it's the second time I'm coming back to this word dissociative, mm-hmm. because a, a lot of, 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 uh, of my early training going back uh, several hundred years ago <laughs> uh, um, you know, was about helping people connect their emotions and their and their and their thoughts, so that there was what Carl Rogers referred to as congruence between our emotional state and our intellectual state. There was rather than a dualism, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't. I think, therefore, I am, but it's. I think and feel, therefore, I'm a whole person. Mm-hmm. And so we went for that congruence. And again, I, the, the, the reason I'm saying this is because of the word dissociative. If people are being dissociated from their feelings during by taking this, tell us a little something about how you, or maybe a big something, about, <laughs> about how you integrate, how you help them integrate Mm-hmm. It was dissociated. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And Genesee, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. But, um, you know, one of, the, one of the theories that we have around why a dissociative would be helpful in psychological healing, which, as you pointed out, Richard, is so emotionally focused, why would we then evoke or create the conditions for dissociation to happen? Well, one of the things is that, uh, you know, oftentimes, and there's plenty of research to support this, that a diverse array of um, different forms of psychopathology have at their root uh, a form of childhood trauma. The Adverse Childhood Experiences study that, that Kaiser did several years back demonstrated that um, uh, adverse childhood experiences correspond with many um, later adverse life experiences, such as domestic violence, addiction, um, suicidality, depression, so on. So there's high correlations between trauma and um, many different forms of psychopathology. One of, the, um, one of the symptoms of trauma is that it's very, very difficult to access one's inner world. One's inner world, emotional life, becomes a very frightening place to be. And so dissociation is used as a defense from, uh, to prevent being overwhelmed by the intolerable emotional experiences that are there. So we could imagine ketamine as a dissociative anesthetic as a bit of a homeopathic cure in that it evokes... Um, a, a slight experience of dissociation or the mind separating from the body, but done in a therapeutic setting. As the mind separates from the body, the anxiety of having to confront the painful emotional experiences in one's body is diminished. Uh-huh. So with the, with the mind more in a calm state, 
we can encourage a kind of re-engagement of the body and the emotions that live there. So it's dissociation in the service of healing. That, that, that dissociation evoked by the ketamine turns the volume down on anxiety and emotional pain as a whole and allows the individual an opportunity to enter back into their embodied experience in a way that's not so frightening. And so a lot more emotional processing can happen at that place. Yeah, well said, Jason. And and the only thing I'll add is that I've been starting to conceptualize low-dose ketamine in addition to a couple of other psychedelics, 5-MeO-DMT being one of them, as reassociatives. So um, while ketamine at high doses can have this dissociative effect, at lower doses, it seems to allow us to reassociate with the parts, the feelings, the emotions, the memories that have been dissociated because of trauma up to a, a cellular level, you know, there are times in low-dose ketamine sessions where, where people report being able to feel parts of their body that, in a way that they, that they haven't been able to for years. And at times, emotions come up that they haven't felt for a very long time. So, so I see it as having this powerful reassociative effect. I, I, um, I have a question here uh, that's related to what you're saying. Um, just learning about uses of uses of psychedelic medications for depression and anxiety. How would I know if ketamine would be useful therapy for me? Uh, the second half of the question I'm going to answer for you. Uh, the, the first half is how to, uh, just suck it away. You know, how do they, how would they know if it'll be helpful? The second half is, could you recommend reading material or a clinic that could help direct a course? And the answer to that is, of course, contact the Sage Institute. It's in Oakland, easy to find on Google. If you two can handle the first question, though, how does the person make some kind of determination about whether or not to, to come to your clinic uh, to, to try ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? Sure. And, you know, there's more information on the Sage Integrative Health website as well. If you want to read a little bit more about ketamine specifically, you can go to sageintegrativehealth.org to, to get more information there. Go to our ketamine page. Sageintegrativehealth.org, everybody. Sageintegrativehealth.org. Okay. That's right. And, you know, it's really hard to tell any particular person whether this medicine is going to be useful for them. Like any psychedelic medicine, uh, each person has the ones that seem to be simpatico with them and, and others that don't. And so, I, you know, you would have to first talk with a prescriber to, who would do an evaluation to get a sense of whether you have any risk factors. I can name some of those risk factors now so that you know. Um, one of them is a history of urinary or bladder issues. One of the primary potential side effects of heavy ketamine use is cystitis. And so you want to make sure that you don't have a, a previous history of uh, either cystitis or urinary or frequent urinary tract infections, that kind of thing. Also, you'd want to have any uh, blood pressure issues controlled prior to using this particular medicine. And uh, any kind of history of mania or psychosis well addressed before stepping into this work. Um, there are other issues as well that people will, that doctors will screen for, but those are some of the primary ones. Uh, people with who have treatment resistant depression, who've had, you know, severe depression for a long time, they've tried other things like antidepressants and psychotherapy and, and nothing seems to be working. 
those people tend to be good candidates for ketamine assisted therapy. Others with depression, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't with more mild forms of depression, more moderate forms of depression, dysthymia, that kind of thing. It, it may work, it may not work. It's hard to say, you kind of have to try it to find out. And then in terms of anxiety, that one's still, we're, we're still figuring that one out. There's still research that needs to be done to look into how ketamine impacts anxiety. For some people, they found that it increases their levels of anxiety. Other people have found that it helps with their anxiety. So again, you'd have to try it out to find out. I, I've never found anything as effective as learning how to breathe uh, for anxiety. But it, it takes... Saying that. Huh? Thank you for saying that because, you know, ketamine, like any particular psychedelic medicine is just one tool in the toolbox and it's just one aspect of the treatment. So it's not like most people don't come in and have one psychedelic session, whatever the psychedelic medicine is, and feel completely cured of whatever it is that they're dealing with. Typically, that's one experience and it can be a very powerful one that can be life changing in many ways. And the integration and the daily practices of self-care, including breathing and eating well and exercising and meditating are all a part of getting better. And you can't take one piece out of it and hope that it's going to work on its own. Yeah, well said. Um, you mentioned uh, other psychedelics. Are there any other uh, psychedelics that are allowable for your use uh, at, at the present day? There are a couple that aren't currently criminalized. One of them is salvia divinorum. Um, the other one, you know, as many people know, cannabis is decriminalized in many states at this point and legalized for medical use in some. Um, but but there, there aren't a whole lot. Most psychedelics are still illegal and schedule one substances. And, you know, as many people know, there are FDA trials that are looking into MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, and even the combination of MDMA and psilocybin as a treatment for a wide variety of, of medical disorders. There's also certain states like, like Oregon, for example, that's just legalized psilocybin for therapeutic use. The state of California is looking into a statewide decriminalization bill for psychedelic plants in general. So we're moving in that direction. But as of now, it, most of them are still uh, schedule one and, and illegal. Yeah, I have to learn more about what Aragon did. It looks to me like they made a, might have decriminalized all MDMA and LSD and ayahuasca, but I'm, I don't want to say that for certain uh, to that's listeners. Right. I think that you think that's accurate. Well, they decriminalized all psychedelic. Uh, I believe it's plants. I'm not sure if it's substances. Yes. Uh, they decriminalize all psychedelic plants, and then they they initiate or they passed a bill that will initiate a process of setting up the structures to legalize psilocybin assisted therapy, but they have two years to, to get those structures sorted out before it's, it's ready to go. It's quite an interesting world we live in, isn't it? Where in one state of the union, you can go and get treatment with a substance and you can actually be allowed to take that substance home and uh, with your uh, teledelic psychotherapy, <laughs> your, your, your practitioner, <laughs> your practitioner may give you the actual medicine, the psychedelic medicine, uh, and you take it at home while you're conferring with each other on Zoom, 
and doing the exact same thing in another state of the union could result in people coming into your home with guns, pointing them at you and taking you away. That is the world we live in. It's a, it's, it's fascinating. Hmm. Uh, it really is. I mean, that, uh, I don't know how you even can explain that to a, to a young person that we live in such a place. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Now you mentioned Mar. It doesn't really, uh, but a lot of things don't. Um, <laughs> um, you mentioned marijuana. Uh, what do you want to tell our listeners, if if anything, about the use of marijuana in psychotherapy? You know, it's not something either of us have a lot of experience working with as psychotherapists. However, as as you know, two people who are quite well familiar with. Uh, these different uh, psychedelic or entheogenic or you know plant medicines, um, I think the potentiality for cannabis being used in psychotherapy is is highly significant. Uh, it's it's one of those that uh, fits within Groff's definition as a non-specific amplifier of consciousness. I think uh, in, in a safe enough setting, it can really bring down the defenses and expand uh, the. Um, connective links that people make between different aspects of their life uh, can evoke the kind of uh, dreamlike part of the mind that helps uh, consciousness and imagination to expand out in different ways that um, aren't quite as accessible in uh, a sober state of mind. It's, we need a lot more research on that topic, don't we? Yeah. Very much so. I, I was fortunate I was able to do some research and the use of marijuana in group psychotherapy uh, many, many decades ago. And um, it didn't work out too well, uh, to, in all candor, because um, what happened in a, in a group psychotherapy uh, session was that one person could be working on something. For example, I remember this very well, uh, about the death of a mother and feeling very uh, tearful and getting into some grief and someone else across the room at the same time was giggling over something that was going on in their mind. Now, they didn't mean to be inappropriate to the person across the room, yet where their mind was being taken by the marijuana was such that they, you know, really and truly were giggling. And so that was, a, that, that was very off-putting to everyone in the room. It happened that all the people in the room were all doctors of either medicine or psychology, uh, and so, you know, everybody took note of this and there was a lot of discussion, but uh, mm -hmm. it sort of pointed me at that time and, and a few a, a few instances of that, that much more research was needed and maybe it would be more something more to be useful in individual therapy than than in group therapy. Oh, that reminds me, that was another question I wanted to ask, which is, is ketamine assisted psychotherapy used with couples, families? and in group settings, and that's gonna probably be our last question uh, for the day. So there's there's some preliminary examples of it being used in couples therapy, though few and far between. Uh, someone named Will Vanderveer has, has done some work with ketamine in couples and, and found great success thus far. And he did a presentation at the CREA conference, which is a gathering of ketamine-assisted therapy or ketamine providers in general that happened on a yearly basis until this year. 
Uh, and it seems so it seems like there's a lot of potential there. But again, it's very preliminary in terms of group work that's been happening more extensively. There are a number of different clinics that do regular ketamine assisted therapy groups. We were about to launch one at Sage Integrative Health when COVID happened. So we put that on pause, but it, it's a, a really excellent way to bring the cost down for people. Uh, there, it's important to do some additional screening to make sure that people are well suited to do group work. And in addition to ketamine work, some people feel that it's important to have an individual ketamine session first so that they can get a sense of how they respond to the medicine. And often group work happens more in a type of space where everyone in the room goes into their individual process. So they lie down, they have eye shades on, maybe there's music playing and they have their inner experience and then they come back together and talk, talk about the experience as a group. Now, ketamine is an interesting medicine to use for this particular purpose and in this setting because it tends to blur the boundaries, not just between our own conscious and unconscious minds, but also between the consciousnesses of everyone in the room. So, you know, as the bodies, the, the limits of the body start to fade away, you start to join with other consciousnesses and feel a sense of interconnection. And there can be a very powerful phenomenon that happens in group experience. So I think there's a lot of potential there. Tell everyone again, who's listening, how they can make contact with the SAGE Institute, both online and telephonically. Great. So you can go to our website at www.sageinst.org, and you can contact us through our, our both our email address, which should be listed there, as well as our, our phone number, which is listed there as well. Again, that's www.sageinst.org www.sageinst.org. It's worth you looking at whether you're interested in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or not. This is an important topic for you all to know about, and you're having the opportunity now, you had the opportunity today to listen to two pioneers in the field. I want to thank you both very much for joining me today. It's been an a educational experience. I want you to come back again and keep us posted in the future about developments at the Sage Institute and um, great working with you both. Thanks so much, Richard. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Really appreciate you having us on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And, and thank you all listeners for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics and special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, who really makes this broadcast possible. The preceding program was brought to you by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and a political activist who has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world, and I mean millions. Paul so much appreciates mind, body, health, and politics that he created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends. He donates 20% of all internet sales of these mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends to the COVID Response Network. It's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast. So support this cause. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website. Let's see what we have here. Here's a, here's a bag 
of the coffee I can put right on the screen. Check that out. <laughs> and go right to their website and buy Mind, Body, Health and, uh, and, and Politics Coffee and support the COVID Response Network, which certainly can use the support. And again, please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) 